I've had a remarkably large number of people send me articles or links to sermons of Christian leaders speaking out in this political time saying, this is how a Christian should vote, or this is how a Christian should think through the most significant policies of our time. And, and, and the way the rhetoric continues to escalate to the point where people are saying on, on both sides of a political spectrum that this is sort of like the most important election in American history kind of ramps up the pressure upon us to feel like, man, what we are doing in this moment and what we are a part of is deeply, deeply significant, and therefore the weight of that just feels like a lot. How many people are going to be really happy when this election is over? Well, not only are we going to get regular commercials back on television, um, which I oddly miss, but I'm hoping that as, as we start looking forward to the other side, right, when the, when the smoke screen of a global biological pandemic starts to shift, and when we're not as politically tense right now as a nation and as a people, as a culture, as we are, I keep thinking, well, what's on the other side? Like, what happened to us in this season? So I do want to tell you this morning how a Christian should vote. I think a Christian should vote with a ballot held loosely in one hand and a Bible held firmly in the other. The political processes of our world are worthy of redemption and the application of all of the Christian principles that are taught to us in the Gospels and the timeless truths of Scripture. And we're going to have divergent opinions even on how that gets played out, even by those in this room. But more importantly than what happens in a ballot booth next Tuesday is what happens in the heart of every follower of Jesus the next morning. One of the candidates who was running for the President of the United States stood on the stage and promised that Christianity would have power. It doesn't really matter who it was. It could have been any of them. Because the promise is always that, right? You'll have power. You'll get what you want when you get me. What's interesting about this approach, though, is that we already had power. I think often we're blind to how much authority and power we truly have as followers of Jesus. Scriptures remind us of this again and again and again. In fact, this was actually the first lie in the Garden of Eden, right? The evil one says, if you take this, you will actually become more like God. And the reality is, is they already were. And that when they participated in sin and tried to grab power for themselves, they actually became less human, less image-bearing, less God-glorifying. So I want to remind you that you don't need a promise from any civic leader any cultural influencer, any social media guru to try to promise you some sort of influence or power because according to Jesus, you already have it. And you will have power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the promise of Jesus. Not any politician. 
And so what happens when we look at our political leaders and where we are right now? And we've been influenced for so long sort of by the, the, the angry rhetoric and the, and the threats and the fears of this is what will happen if you let that person get in. This is what will happen if you let those guys have influence. But maybe... Maybe what's more important than all of that and what we re need reminder again are the very things that we sang already this morning. To remind ourselves that there's one who reigns above every throne, every power, every authority on heaven and on earth and under the earth. And so do we take these processes seriously? Absolutely. Are they worthy of time, thought, and redemption? Absolutely. Are, there wor are they worthy of our own professors running for political office? And are they worthy of prayer and consideration and thought? Absolutely. Because everything is worthy of being considered under the lordship of Jesus and how we figure that out. But, how a Christian should vote, no matter what, is a ballot held loosely in one hand and a Bible firmly in the other. You see, the future of Christianity in America depends infinitely more on the one who occupies your heart than the one who occupies the White House. And if the church lets itself become too divided in difficult or anxious or tense times, how do we come back on the other side and demonstrate a unity to a world that's fractured I worry about that for us. What if underneath all the top headlines is this fine print that we just can't see right now in the middle of the smokescreen that what's happening deep inside here is of infinitely more value than what happens in the headlines or in the places of power in the world. This is the passage that we've been looking at, and I just want to backtrack a little bit into it before we look at the pieces of the clothing of Christ that we're called to put on, that will give us, that we are told will be how we enact, how we live out our influence, our authority, and our power in the name of Jesus in this world. The present tense realities, not the promise of any politician. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Because that's where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God and set your minds on things above. Not on earthly things. For you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let me skip a couple verses in that section and then get to this. Therefore, so in light of those realities, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, listen carefully because this is you, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. 
and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. The last five weeks, we've looked at these five virtues kind of building compassion and then kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And when you take these five things and you actually put them on, one of the things that it compels us to is some sort of actionable response, a, a different way of living, one that creates influence in the world because it is so rare and so beautiful. Most people are compelled to follow Christ not because of some clever argument, but because they received love in a way that nobody else had ever shown it before. Because someone reached out to them in their lives and extended the very influence and power and authority that we were told we would have, one that didn't look like the world. You can get that down the street anywhere. What's much harder to find is the beautiful character of Jesus coming through in his people. You see, Christianity isn't an end justifies the means type of movement. The way that we get there, the way of Jesus, matters deeply. These actionable results play out in this passage as we start to see what happens when all five of these virtues get combined to now demand some sort of response in our life. And one of the things is, is that when they're enacted and they become the glue that holds a community of believers together that hold Jesus in common, they bear with each other. You guys, there are so many of us in here who have divergent opinions on worship and theology, on um, international policy and domestic policy and how we would think politically, all of that. Those are differences. But they're never supposed to be enough to separate God's people because what's supposed to make us different is that the common denominator between us, the leveling that we have at the cross, transcends all of those. Every gender, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And that's supposed to be different for the world. You don't get there, though, without wronging or hurting one another along the way. We are passionate people, and we have deep um, opinions and thoughts about things, and that's okay. But we're taught to bear with one another. Do you understand today how countercultural that is in a cancel culture movement? So instead of just isolating yourself to surround yourself with all the voices that already think like you and act like you and believe all the same things you do, to actually be able to bear with those who think differently. Walsh and Keysmat in their commentary on this passage say that community is possible only where forgiveness is prevalent. That you'll never have genuine community unless you have genuine forgiveness. You see, we won't actually recover as a nation or a culture or a church. And we won't ever establish the kind of influence that is growing back again in the places where we've been planted unless we get this down. 
When I first started traveling to Liberia and asked people's families the different stories about what they had been through in the war, and to sit in a congregation where someone would testify about how someone in their family killed somebody in their family, and how they were at odds, not just politically, but with lives on the line at the points of machetes and guns. And in Christ Jesus found reconciliation beyond that. As those stories were told, as people came forward in baptism and confessed to atrocities, to realize the level of forgiveness that's possible in Jesus makes you feel like we're just dabbling around in the shallow end of the pool of grace, doesn't it? There is so much more forgiveness available to us in Christ, not only for ourselves, but in extension to one another. You guys, I mean, I'm more worried about us not recovering from this moment and not being able to forgive one another and move forward in unity than I am any specific political leader winning next Tuesday. Because if that's the case, we will have all lost already. Bear with each other. You know, we need to be able to follow, okay? As we follow Jesus, we need to be able to put up with circumstances and with people that we don't think we can stand. I mean, let's be honest. We, we kind of entered into this, this 2020 uh, um, a little bit spiritually lethargic. We're kind of like couch potato Christians. We really haven't been tested in our faith in the same way, and part of this test is revealing a little bit of what's underneath as we go through a difficult cultural moment, as we go through individual personal hardships. And each one of you has those on top of all the big, broad, sweeping things I talk about. But it's the hardest people. And it's the toughest circumstances that are going to grow us the most. But only if we let them. Only if we let them. And so maybe, just maybe, as important as the degree you hold when you get to walk off this stage after four years at this place is what has happened inside of you. I often talk with others on this campus about, I think, I think there's a co-curricular curriculum. Like, I think there's a, a process of learning that needs to happen when you fight with a roommate about dishes. When you go through a breakup with somebody, but treat them with dignity and respect. When you switch from one group of friends to another, when you need to resolve a conflict when it's time to sign up for rooming and everybody's worried they're going to leave somebody else out and somebody's worried about hurting somebody else's feelings, like what happens in those spaces and in those times is as important as what happens on your transcript. And maybe at times even more so. The necessity of faith formation inside Christian community is vital for us to becoming who we need to be, and spiritual muscles in that are only ever exercised when they are tested. This is why everybody who teaches and, and works at Dort's going to tell you we need to be part of local churches. You need to be in an intergenerational faith formation, localized context and connecting. And I know that that's been hard, and it's been different in this season. But just longer term, as we keep thinking and reaching forward, what if the most spiritual moments for us aren't when we get what we experienced or what we wanted the most in a worship moment? What if it's the time when we didn't get what we wanted? What if there's actually more spiritual growth happening in us by not getting what we want 
and learning to still love and appreciate the blessing that that is for somebody else than us actually getting what our consumeristic branded version of faith at times has taught us to demand. That's why bearing with each other shows up in this list of seven, eight things. Eight if you include love. They're supposed to give us the ability to transform the world. I was listening to a song recently this week, Marianne J. George, in the middle, uh, towards the end of it, has this repeated chorus of only those who come to their senses let go of offenses. And I was meditating on that as just thinking about this text. And how many of us actually, when we don't let go of the offenses that somebody else has enacted or wronged us with, end up becoming emotionally or spiritually paralyzed and stuck there. See, forgiveness is what allows us to progress in our growth. And when we withhold forgiveness from people, it actually stunts us. It pins us down. And so one of the things I think that we need to think about when we think about forgiving somebody who wrongs us or bearing with someone who we're struggling with is that forgiveness isn't something that you dole out to them so much as it is first and foremost something that God has given you so that you don't have to stay stuck, paralyzed by that hurt that somebody enacted upon you for the rest of your life. Forgiveness is this amazing gift that comes in us and through us out. And the idea is to release us. When it says in the New Testament, confess your sins to one another, I think what he's saying is get the toxins out of your body. Like all the poison that's killing you, just get it out. Confess it. Let it go. It's not supposed to be this shaming moment. It's supposed to be this freeing moment. That's why we do it. That's why we're called to it. And we're learning how to live with political, denominational, racial, generational, cultural differences. And we need to all learn how to stay at the table a little bit longer with someone who sees the world a little bit differently than we do. The reason why she says only those who come to their senses will let go of offenses is because those who don't will stay emotionally and spiritually paralyzed by the hurt that someone else gave them. See, because then that person didn't just give you hurt. They spiritually paralyzed you unless you forgive them. So the command comes in this text. Forgive one another. And I know that we don't want to do We feel as though that when someone has wronged us or hurt us, that the last power we potentially have left within us is to offer that person forgiveness. So we want to hold on to that. We feel like when everything else has been taken from us, when we have been hurt, when we have been wronged, when someone has said something that has been destructive to our character, to our confidence, we don't want to let that go because we feel like they took from us and this is the one thing I got left is I am not forgiving you for that. And scripture teaches us so clearly that now you've actually compounded the hurt when we refuse forgiveness of others. Because now we will hit a ceiling that our growth can't go past. We will be held in and not become what God has designed and created us to be. Forgive one another. One of Jesus' most deepest teachings on this comes in this parable. We'll close with this. 
And Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Also translated 70 times seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began to the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Notice the exact same wording that he himself pleaded with before. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servants in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. In this text in Colossians 3 is this command, this imperative of forgive one another. If you want to put on the clothing of Christ, you're going to have to forgive one another. You've got to let it go. The clothing ain't going to fit if you don't forgive one another. If you're holding on to stuff, it's not going to work for you in the same way it's supposed to. You have to understand in this parable, okay, the actual math of what's taking place. One talent is equivalent probably about to about 20 years wages for a day laborer back then. And he owed 10,000 talents to his master. That is 200,000 years of wages. Somebody says, be patient with me and I'll pay back everything. It's a joke. 200,000 years of pay or 73 million days of work is what it would have taken to pay off that debt. Yeah, but just be patient with me. I'll get there. What? What he is forgiven is astronomical. It's ridiculous. The act of grace extended to him, undeserved, he had squandered this. He hadn't done what he was supposed to do with it. And now, how did he ever get into debt that deeply? Notice the master doesn't blame him for that. That's not the point of the story. It's that that's where he is. This is the part where we're supposed to be like, wow, that's equivalent to my infinite, eternal debt that I owe for what has been extended to me, undeserved. Therefore, if I have been given an eternity, a sum in riches that I could have never earned, never paid back, how audacious would it be for me not to forgive somebody else? 
Because the guy who comes to him, where one denarii or one silver coin equals one day's wages, that guy owed him about 100 days worth of pay. 100 days of pay, and he throws him in prison versus 73 million days of pay that he was forgiven. Each time you and I hold a grudge against somebody else, We are the person who's been forgiven 73 million days worth of what we've done. And now, granted, right, within the story, this guy who he goes to at the end owes him 100 days worth of wages. That's no small thing. Jesus' intent in extending forgiveness to us and us extending forgiveness to others is not to belittle the hurt you've experienced. I think there's a reason why in the parable that still is a significant amount. A hundred days worth of pay? Think about that in today's terms. That's a massive debt. But think about that in terms of hurt, something somebody said or did to you. Jesus knows that it's no small thing. It's not belittling it. It's significant. And Jesus' message isn't, well, just get over it. It's, yes, that hurts. And I'm with you in your pain. But what I want to give you through the work of my spirit is something different than the rest of the world operates on. And I want you to forgive the way that I forgave you. And I want to give you the ability to do that. Because Christ establishes not only the pattern, but actually the possibility of forgiveness. A supernatural act extended to us and then extended through us to others. We learn to live out our faith, putting on the clothing of Christ, becoming a community that interacts with one another, different than any other group or body in the world. And the way that we do that, not even just the result, the way that we do that might just be the loudest part of our witness in the world today. The way that you interact with your roommate is good news for the rest of the world. The way that you interact with someone else on the team is supposed to be good news for the rest of the world. The way that people watch us interact with someone who serves us at a restaurant is supposed to be good news for the rest of the world. The way that you and I treat one another, the way that we ask for people to pay us back when they have wronged us, all of these things, the manner in which we do it is supposed to be good news for the rest of the world. And Jesus says, when you don't have enough within you to do that, when you can't pull that up within yourselves, I will give it to you as an act of grace. As we go into a time of prayer and close, I want to I invite you to allow the Holy Spirit to convict you in this moment of some way that you have been wronged by someone and you're still carrying that, or a way potentially maybe that you have wronged somebody else and you still carry that with you. See, because I don't think that Jesus wants anybody here to be emotionally or spiritually paralyzed. I think he wants to see that part of you come back from the grave. He wants to resurrect it and bring life where you thought it was gone. They thought they were going to show up at a grave and find a body. And instead they found a resurrected Messiah. And that same resurrection power is available to us and through us. Will you pray with me? Father, you teach us that there is power in forgiveness. 
of letting go. And Father, we have a hard time in this difficult world knowing what it means to walk around with thick skin and a soft heart. To be in this world and not of it. To love deeply. And then not be forever scarred when it hurts us back. Father, we ask that we would be inspired by your Holy Spirit's vision. That we would not be held captive by the ways that people have hurt us or the ways that we have hurt other people. We recognize that we are recipients of an undeserved grace. And now, Lord, we ask that we would also be givers of it to ourselves and to others. And Father, in this time, we pray for, um, we pray for our church. We pray for the church, your church. Because in some ways, it's trying to recover. Father, we pray for beautiful, supernatural moments of reconciliation. We pray for families that have been divided over political arguments. Friendships that have escalated in rhetoric to things that have been said that should have never been said by a follower of you. And Father, for the deepest places in us where those in this room have been hurt in ways that we've never been able to share with anybody else. We know that you know those places. We know that you know those secrets and those hurts. We pray that light would shine in and that you would give us hope and a picture of what it would like to walk in freedom out of the grave into the light to share in your forgiveness in your reconciliation in your resurrection with a deep, deep hope of that for all of us, we pray. Amen. Will you please stand and receive a parting blessing? Brothers and sisters in Christ, may you go out into this day, into your relationships, and into the wider world around. And may your passion and love for Jesus shine through in the things that you do. In the smallest of acts to one another, and the biggest of pressures that you face this week, may you be good news for a world longing for it right now so deeply. Be compassionate, patient, humble, kind, bearing, and forgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day, you guys.